As we begin our time now in the Word, I'm um, coming back to Matthew 19. We're going to, Lord willing, finish up our time on this passage. We've spent a little more delayed time and almost a mini-series on divorce as we're just consistently going through the passage here of Matthew 19, but we've done so because there's such a great need in the Church of Jesus Christ on this particular subject. And as we go through today, I, one of my objectives is for you to feel the struggle uh, so that it comes into your mind with all the greater gravity of how difficult this subject is, even when we deal with something that seems simple as the exception clause, uh, because we should give all the greater pause to any other reasons that people, particularly Christians, then cite um, their desire for divorce. We wanted to get that idea, those thoughts, far, far from our minds. So now if you would hear the word of God, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, going back through verse 12 as we begin the time together. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, they had departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they that are no longer one or two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Then they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus for the, from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Our Father, we confess that what is so difficult as we come to this passage this morning is so much of the baggage that we bring to it of our own flesh and from our culture as we have over the years discounted the importance and high view of marriage, we have allowed ourselves to be cultivated with uh, an easy approach and to the extent that even the world now does not even see the need for marriage. Lord, this has affected our minds and our worldview, even within the church, so that there's such a low view. And there's excuses and justifications that are not biblical, and we ask that your Spirit would now square us up with the truth, that we might know the truth, and the truth will set us free. 
And we can stand in that liberty wherewith Christ has set us free and that we can stand in the great kingdom of God of great light and be the testimony to those who need to hear, need to see godly marriages and problems worked out through those marriages to victory and triumph. And so as we come to this passage this morning, we ask that the Spirit would work in each one of our hearts and minds and in our marriages to strengthen those things that are lacking and to shore up the weaknesses and to be to give a new and a high commitment to one another before our God as we have taken those vows. Pray for this new generation who has not yet even come into this bondage of great covenant marriage which testifies of Christ in the church and we pray that you would work in their hearts even now to fix them upon these precepts that Christ has laid before us in the word of truth. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. This is the third message through this very delicate delicate and sensitive subject matter that we have been traversing over the past several weeks on divorce and remarriage. Now for several weeks we've been looking at this passage along with its parallel passage in Mark chapter 10. And from these two passages we see this particular one broken up into three questions. And it's upon those three questions that we've taken each of the three messages that we are now in the third and final message. The first question that started the entire discussion was one that the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked of him in order to test him. It was a disingenuous question, but nonetheless one that was even uh, contentious over even among the Jews of their day. And the question that they asked him, is it lawful to divorce? You might remember there were two schools of thought in those days of the Pharisees that came bringing those questions, the school of Shammai, who believed that there was no cause for divorce except for unfaithfulness of a spouse. The second school of thought, represented by the Hillel school of thought, was that there were much broader reasons for which a man may divorce his wife, even if she ruined a dish or something unfavorable that the wife has found in his eyes, then that would be reason enough by the law of God to provide for divorce. But the question that the Pharisees were asking of Jesus revolved around a point, a fine point, from Deuteronomy 24.1 about what constitutes uncleanness for which a man may divorce his wife. And they were putting this question to Jesus in order to test him, desiring to bring him into an awkward position so that they might expose him in some matter of shame. But Jesus surprised both them and his listeners, and I'll say even his disciples, in not addressing the issue from Deuteronomy 24, but rather, which is where the Pharisees focused their attention, But rather, he took them back to the beginning, the beginning of the institution of marriage that God had established from before the fall in the very context of creation. And there he answers them about marriage and its intent and design in the first place. And the answer Jesus gave to them was, 
neither Moses nor God legislated divorce into existence. In spite of the fallenness of this world, the way from the very beginning about marriage is the way that it has always been. Moses nor God, did neither one legislated divorce into existence. Married people are no longer two. They are indivisible. The two become one flesh, and what two God cements together, let no man divide. So we looked at that as one of the messages, and then the second message we followed up to be a little more clear about really where the argument was. Because the Pharisees followed it up and said, why then did Moses command or permit? They first said, and then used the term command later. It was clear that Jesus did not satisfy the Pharisees at that point, and so it prompted them in their next question about why Moses permitted it. Last time we did look at unpacking that particular passage on which they referenced from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And it certainly was not the command or a legislation to divorce. What was commanded there was not divorce. While Moses permitted divorce, it was because of the hardness of hearts, and that's what Jesus said. The law in Deuteronomy 24 was to regulate and to rein in the abuses that were going on around divorces that were already going on in order to provide protection and provision for the wife, for the woman who was divorced. So the main point of 24, chapter 24 of Deuteronomy was not the point in which the Pharisees were focusing, which was verse 1 and then carries on to verse 1 through 3, the, the focus of that entire passage was on verse 4, which was the regulation and the reining in of the abuses that were already happening. And so there, we do have commands of, that surrounds this, but it was not a command to divorce. It was a command to do what to do about it if the divorce was going to happen. But Jesus clearly said it was the hardness of, of the heart, even in the context of God permitting divorce. It was not his intention or design from the beginning, and that's the point that he wants the Pharisees, his disciples, and you and me to understand this morning. To the extent that whoever divorces a spouse and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries a divorced person commits adultery. And whoever divorces a spouse, and if that spouse remarries another, then he who has divorced that spouse is a party to the adultery that then subsequently goes on in that other marriage. Well, you don't understand. My husband is unkind and cruel to me. That's the Hillel school. My husband has been unfaithful. That was the Shammai school. Moses permitted it, but Jesus said it was because of the hardness of heart. 
Now, Jesus takes such a high ground that neither party of the Shammai school nor the Hillel school was satisfied. And from the scriptural standpoint, there never is a recommendation to divorce in all of the scriptures. And it's been my pastoral um, perspective, as well as my counsel, I never, ever counsel divorce. Period. The scripture never does it, and I never do it. And I think I'm safe in doing so. There is a permission in this context, of which we are going to look at more thoroughly this morning, and I want you to see the difficulties. I want you to feel the difficulties. Because if you can feel the difficulties with the exception, then certainly, hopefully, that'll make it black and white on everything else that's not the exception. The scripture does suggest that there may be separation that's warranted, Divorce, however, legally separates that covenantal relationship so that they can start all over again with new spouses. And there's problems with that. If I decide to divorce and remarry, pastor, will that be adultery? Yes. In every case, but one. Before I turn the page, let me just say that one more time. Pastor, if I decide to divorce and remarry, will that be adultery? Yes, it will be adultery. In every case, perhaps, but one. This morning I want to talk to you about that one exception clause. The Bible gives only one exception where a believer is permitted to divorce. I'm going to say that very clearly because I'm saying that quite clearly in the context of 1 Corinthians 7. The Bible gives only one exception where a believer is permitted to divorce. When the disciples were alone with Jesus, they then ask him a further question in verses 10 through 12, which Mark's chapter 10 actually brings to bear that it wasn't a form of a question. Because Jesus was taking such a high view of marriage that even to the disciples, it sounded like Jesus' position was so idealistic and unworkable that they said, Lord, if such is the case, verse 10, of a man with his wife, it is better just not to marry. And then Jesus said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only to whom that it has been given. Now to us, this has been given. So we need to accept this saying. Now so far up to this point, we've actually left out the exception clause in order to deal with and understand what is generally the case, what we call the rule. There are rules and there are exceptions to the rule. 
Well, we have to deal with the rule, what is generally the case, before we can deal with the exceptions, because the human, human flesh and the fallenness of human nature tends to run toward the exceptions, therefore skewing really what is generally the case. What is generally the case is from Genesis 1, Genesis 2, what God has put together, what he has ordained in marriage. And it's only when we come to embrace the rule, what is generally the case, according to what the Lord is teaching, can we then, and only then, address the exception clause. Now I confess this is not an easy subject, nor is the exception clause an easy matter to tackle. It's not as straightforward as you might think. I want to take you through some of that challenge as you wrestle through it yourself, because it's going to be important that you wrestle with this. We were told in seminary, make sure you come to an understanding of your position and conviction on divorce and remarriage before, before the first person comes and starts asking you about it. Because then the biases and your compassion and your mercy may end up biasing your position so that your conviction is not absolutely objective. Now, you will likely face this issue at some point in your life where you will need to know what you believe about this subject, what your convictions are. And it's not my intention to then even persuade you on where my position is. I'm going to tell you what my position is, but you have to have it from the truth down here. So it's good to work out your conviction on this matter of how you see the Scripture and what the Spirit of God is intending on this matter of marriage and divorce before a close friend comes to you for counsel who may be considering something that's not biblical. And so I want to point out some of those challenges along the way so you'll be aware of them. There are a number of different positions and views on this passage and on this topic of divorce and remarriage itself, even among conservative evangelicals. And some views do not allow the exception at all, and they do have their exegetical reasons for doing so. So you just need to be aware that there are those cases there. There are others that allow the exception clause for a period of the betrothal, the Jewish betrothal period, but after that, remarriage um, is not an option. There are many debates around this particular passage, but really the debate comes down to the context of the passage and a particular term on the exception clause, which is translated either adultery or immorality or fornication, but it's the word porneia. Porneia except for porneia. So I'm going to share my view, but you're going to need to work through this yourself. Number one, I believe that the exception clause is a genuine exception. The nature of the exception is to introduce a situation that wasn't taken into consideration by the general rule. That's the whole nature of of an exception. It's not taken. Uh, the nature of the exception is to introduce a situation that was not taken into consideration by the general rule. 
Number two, I'm also assuming that the exception about divorce includes the freedom to remarry. It does not appear logical or the Spirit's intent to permit the one without the other. There seems to be an implication when there is a divorce. And if it's done with the right exception, then it permits the other to remarry. If it is not done according to the biblical exception, then that subsequent marriage is actually adultery. Number three, I'm assuming the critical issue in this passage is what the Holy Spirit means by the term that he uses, porneia. It's really where a lot of the debate comes around, in which I'll show you in just a moment. That word porneia has been translated in different translations as adultery or fornication or immorality. Uh, it is that which gives the exception and cause the exception. So let's work through some of this this morning as we look at some of the different views, and I want to give you a couple of different views, and I want to start with one view, and that's at less, less like the lowest level in this argument. That view one is the exception clause applies to the betrothal period, to the Jewish betrothal period. So it's okay, it's permitted to get divorced if you are betrothed, but that that marriage has not yet been consummated. Only in those cases, view one would say, would then that be lawful or biblical. Now it's assuming porneia, regardless of what else it may mean, that certainly it would include unfaithfulness during the Jewish betrothal period. So I will consent to that particular point. If someone is betrothed and found unfaithful during that betrothal period, and that's played out, uh, or that spouse played the harlot before that marriage was consummated, this would be an exception that would allow that betrothal to be broken. This is what Deuteronomy 22 gives direction to, and while we read that earlier today. The penalty for unfaithfulness was the death penalty. And you need to remember that. This is what Joseph thinks Mary was guilty of during their betrothal period. But rather than having Mary stoned, he decided to put her away privately. He was not going to bring that marriage to a consummation until an angel of the Lord informed him more clearly. Now there's an application for us here that I think we can just stop and pause at for just a moment. When we, when you and I have an application of Scripture, be sided like Joseph was with the most merciful position that Scripture will allow. I think that's helpful. I'll come back to that shortly. Regarding the betrothal period, there are at least three applications that would apply to us today. The first application would certainly be with a Jewish betrothal that still may be applicable today among Jewish couples who still have this betrothal practice that goes on. Or I could say even it would apply to a similar Gentile arrangement such as engagements. 
In our world, we don't usually practice a betrothal period, but once there's an engagement, there is a promise. It's not as strong as a Jewish betrothal, but there are promises. In a Jewish betrothal, oftentimes the vows would be given at this point, and the, later the marriage consummation would happen down here. So it's kind of like the time between um, when we all leave the service and we come to the reception, but the honeymoon hasn't happened yet. And so there are still some applications to us. So the exception clause would also apply in the betrothal period when one of the parties is actually married to someone else. In other words, divorce was allowable for the unfaithfulness during the betrothal period. This is still view one. And if it was allowed due to unfaithfulness during that betrothal period by one of the spouses, then it would certainly apply if it were found out that one of those spouses were already married. The betrothal is breakable when a betrothed spouse finds out that he or her partner is already married to somebody else. Now there's a a third application Now, a lot of these applications are ones that maybe you've never dealt with or even thought of before, but they are real. The exception clause, that is, when there has been some immorality, some porneia, is applicable to those marriages that were never physically consummated. Again, I'm still within the view one of the betrothal time. In other words, for a marriage to be consummated, there needs to be one flesh. There's no such thing as a marriage without the physically two becoming one flesh. Now, this is the state where, say, the vows were taken, but the two have not yet come together as one flesh. This would be parallel to the Jewish betrothal period. Imagine getting the news. You just got finished taking your vows. And all of the wedding party is on the way to the reception. And on the way to the reception, where you as a freshly, uh, newly married bride, and they've already introduced you as Mr. and Mrs., and you get, before you get to the reception, you find out that the man you just gave your vows to is already married to somebody else. That would be an equivalent betrothal. And when you find that out, he's unfaithful, then yes, that could be broken. Okay? So I would say that in the betrothal view, there are some other applications that we need to think through that the Scripture allows for that exception. Now, all of those modern scenarios and those modern applications to the Jewish betrothal period... um, is why or or where it comes around the point of immorality, which is the point which permits the biblical divorce. Now, many Christians today believe that the only exception clause given here in Matthew 19 is only applicable to the betrothal period or its analogous relationship. John Piper is the most outspoken and has very strong position on this. Now, most interpreters and expositors of Scripture, however, believe that 
It means more to that. So let me go up to the next level. The next level would be that view two, while the exception clause certainly applies to the betrothal period before the marriage was consummated, additionally, some believe that the exception clause also includes forbidden marriages. Marriages that scripture itself puts out of bounds for people. So that if you enter into one of those unlawful kinds of marriages, it is porneia. If you were in a marriage that the scripture actually forbids, some would believe that marriage ought to be broken. How many would take that view? A little sheepish today. Let me make it, see if I can answer it this way, because I'm going to engage your mind. I'm going to have to nuance this. If there were a homosexual marriage, should that marriage be broken, how many of you would agree with that? Okay. A lot more hands went up there. So I'm getting you into a particular framework. Now, some would say that this is what the Scripture is teaching on the exception clause. When there is a marriage that the Scripture itself says is unlawful or it's forbidden, then not only should that marriage be allowed to be divorced, but it should be. Now here's the challenge with that view. By the way, I'm going to agree with those who raise their hands, so I need you to stay with me mentally. We've got to nuance this thing. The challenge with this view is to be clear on what a lawful marriage is and what a lawful marriage is not, and to consider forbidden marriages which are breakable, and forbidden marriages which are not. This requires us to tease out the nuances and compare them with Scripture. And to be clear on this, my position is this. If a marriage is truly invalid, if it's an invalid marriage, to the extent that it is not biblically recognized as marriage, then that so-called marriage, which is really not even a marriage, ought to be dissolved, and it ought to be dissolved as soon as possible. There are going to be times when the civil magistrate recognizes a marriage that is not a marriage. It is doing so today. Then a divorce in the civil realm may need to take place, such as a homosexual marriage. The Bible would not recognize that as a marriage. God did not cement those two together. Okay? So while the church doesn't even recognize it, the civil magistrate may, we need to make sure immediately that gets dissolved. So it is my position that not only in the betrothal period, but also for biblically invalid marriages, they ought to be annulled. Now, the problem in this particular sphere of argument in the view two here that I'm in right now is what qualifies as a valid marriage. There are some 
some marriages that Scripture forbids, but still nonetheless are accepted as valid marriages. Now, some Christians believe that a Christian marrying a pagan is an unlawful marriage, and therefore a divorce is necessary. Now, they're going to bring this into the context of the Pornea exception clause, and it goes like this. Marriage is parallel to God's relationship to his people. In the Old Testament, God's people pursued idolatry, which was considered spiritual adultery. If they married pagan people, that was the kind of spiritual adultery and therefore a kind of pornea, a kind of immorality, and therefore a divorce is warranted in those circumstances. And in fact, it seems obvious that that is what Ezra thought was right when he commanded Israel to put away these foreign wives. Now the problem with that particular perspective is that we have clear revelation from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that addresses this very thing. And when a Christian is married to a pagan, the scripture looks at that marriage as a valid marriage and it commands for believers not to separate from the unbeliever if the unbeliever is pleased to stay in the marriage. The point I'm saying is that there may be marriages that are unlawful, there may be marriages that are forbidden, but are still valid nonetheless. Every one of you are Christians. You are commanded by God, and it is unlawful for you to marry an unbeliever. But if you do, that marriage is valid. All right, are y'all tracking with me so far? And you cannot get out of that marriage. Okay? So that's why we have to tease out these nuances. There are such occasions when the scripture forbids certain types of marriages. It even calls them unlawful. But if you disobey the scripture, it's still a marriage nonetheless. And while the scripture forbids a Christian to marry an unbeliever, in that sense we could call it unlawful, the scripture will still recognize that marriage as valid. And that's why I'm using the term valid in this particular context. But there's also a second kind of forbidden marriage that Leviticus 18 provides for us when it says, none of you shall approach Anyone near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness, I am the Lord. Now it continues on in that passage of Leviticus 18. There the Bible is talking about people with their near blood relatives. And the uncovering of one's nakedness is probably not merely referring to indecent exposure, but likely exposure for the sake of some sexual activity the most extreme form of which would be real intimacy. There are other forms that would stop short of that. I believe that's what the problem was with Ham and his father Noah. Now in verse 7 of Leviticus 18, it describes the kind of relationships he's talking about that he's forbidding marriage. 
The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife, that is your stepmother, or your sister, it goes on to say, or your brother, or your aunt, or your uncle, or your grandparents, or your in-laws. This has to do with the laws of consanguinity. I can't say that word very easily, even though how many times I, I, I rehearsed it before you. Consanguinity. <laughs> Someone say it for me. Yeah, okay, see. You can sympathize with me. It has to do with relationships that has common ancestry that are close of a blood relative. And the civil laws, there are civil laws on the books today that prohibits certain marriages like this based on this biblical passage. And there are penalties that range anywhere from the death penalty to childlessness in the scope of the biblical law in Leviticus. Now, is it possible that the exception clause includes those kinds of relationships? And the question here is, if you're in one of those marriages of consanguinity, does the permanence of marriage apply in that situation? That's the question. Wrestle through that. While those marriages are forbidden, are they valid or are they invalid? Has God cemented those together? Would the exception clause apply to such a marriage? Now, there are reasons to assume that those marriages, at least some of them, should not continue. The incestuous relationship of 1 Corinthians 5 considers the term porneia. It's using the very word porneia as it's identifying the incestuous relationship of the man in 1 Corinthians 5. Herod Antipas, John rebuked him for having his brother's wife. And John had to give up his head for that one. Can you say... With John the Baptist, you should not be doing this. It is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so far, I would say that when a believer is married to an unbeliever, while forbidden and unlawful, it's still a valid marriage and should not be broken. You can't use the exception clause for that one. Additionally, I would say there may be some incestuous relationships that are also forbidden that may not be valid marriages. We're going to have to balance that one out with Abraham and Sarah, right? We're going to have to wrestle through these things. There are other unlawful marriages that exist that are simply and clearly invalid, like a homosexual marriage and other perversions of the sort. And the Bible doesn't even recognize those as marriages, so divorce may not even be needed, except if the civil magistrate recognizes that, uh, then we'll have to pursue that particular legal direction. But God did not join those together. He only joins together man and woman. 
But there are other kinds of unlawful marriages that bring that come into this context. We even have laws on, in the civil realm to make provision for certain kinds of marriages to be broken or annulled because they were deemed unlawful to begin with. For instance, we have marriages that did not involve a legitimate consent of both of the parties. For instance, like if a child or an adult takes a child as a bride where the child is not of age to give proper consent. Or where one is under the influence of drugs and they were dragged off to the wedding chapel and they wake up in their sober-mindedness and find out that they're now married. Or where people are forced into marriage, like young girls forced into marriage with older men. Or where there is mental incompetency and the issue of the marriage was forced. Or marriage itself is a sham because of unlawful purposes like marrying illegal immigrants so they can get their green card. Because this is not at all what the Bible is speaking about when it refers to marriage. There are many difficult and challenging situations where pastors have to make a judgment call on some of these matters. And I do hope this will help you appreciate the terrible complications that pastors sometimes have to face. It's very difficult to unravel some of these things and to know what is right and how to handle them. And sometimes we have to make a ruling about a situation that is not entirely right. But it is mostly right of all the options that we have. It's, it's the, the, the right thing or the thing that gets you the furthest in the right direction. And we don't like that. We don't like, we don't like that kind of thing, do we? Sometimes the pastors have to do that. It, it's, it's not going to score 100% on the scale. It's not going to feel like an A plus or even an A minus. It's going to feel more like a B minus or C. And who likes getting C's? But it's the thing that gets the person the furthest in the right direction. That's the complicated world we live in today. That's why some of those laws were given in the Old Testament. They, they, they did not command divorce, but they permitted it, but tried to rein it in to get things in the most right direction. So, so far, we've covered two views of the exception clause. View one only applies to the Jewish betrothal or the analogous type of relationship. View two would apply to those unlawful kinds of marriages. But the last category, view three, is where porneia additionally includes adultery to a spouse. And I think that's where everybody wants to, 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 to understand it's where a husband and a wife are in a valid marriage and one of the spouses commits adultery. Now, in addition to what we might normally think of as adultery, this would also include things such as a homosexual relationship or someone who is in, in an incestual relationship or prostitution or those forms as well. And most commentators and pastors who hold this view will qualify their position 
so that they are not talking about a single incidence, but talking about a repeat offender or someone who simply will not repent of the first instance. And I just want to be clear on that. Most of the pastors and commentaries are going to fall out on that scale of a characteristic issue or unrepentant. And that's the position that most modern translators take, as well as most modern expositors. It is the prevailing view since the time of the Reformation. It is often called the Erasmian view because Erasmus was the first propounded in writing in 1519. It's pretty much what all the Reformers held to. It's what our Westminster Confession of Faith holds to. It's what uh, J. Adams holds to. It's what John MacArthur and D.A. Carson and many of the other expositors that you're familiar with hold to. In fact, it's what most of the expositors that you're familiar with hold to. Now, personally, for me, I believe that Jesus applied this exception clause to more than just the betrothal period. And I do believe... Uh, even more than to the incestual, incestuous view, to the point of marriage. And my position is that it does apply to marriage where there's a characteristic immoral unfaithfulness of a spouse. And a divorce is permitted in such a case. And when that Divorce is made, it also permits that divorced spouse to remarry. I'm just right kind of like down the line of the Westminster Confession on that one. And here's where I think the strongest form of that position is. Here's some of my reasoning. In the Old Testament, if there was a spouse that was unfaithful in that marriage, that spouse would have been stoned to death. Thus, then breaking or ending that marriage covenant. The penalty for adultery was the death penalty. That would have freed the innocent spouse from the marriage because death then dissolved that union, allowing the innocent party to then remarry. Today, we're not living in a society that punishes adulterers by death. So people end up in marriages where their spouse may be a chronic offender where they ought to be put to death, but they're not. And so those innocent spouses are stuck regardless of what their partner is doing. Now, divorce in such cases is the second option to death, to the death penalty. And it has the same effect upon the innocent party, if, the, if it's a truly innocent party. That's not perfect, but it moves further in the right direction. It's not an A+. Plus. It's not 100%. Now, there are some things when you're working through this that you are going to need to have to think about on that particular view, which seems, on the surface, maybe very simple. So before you just readily adopt that, there are some problems with it. 
And some problems with it within the whole context of what we've been reading in Matthew 19. Jesus took such a high positional marriage that even his disciples understood that Jesus' teaching was so restrictive that they can see people ending up in some very difficult marriages that they could not get out of. They were aware of the Pharisees' positions. And what Jesus taught did not seem to satisfy even the Shammai's position. In fact, the Pharisees would have interpreted it as not being consistent with Shammai because they go on and ask the follow-up questions and the disciples are wondering then who can get married. This, this is just impossible if you have that view, if, you, if you're that restrictive, Lord. So the, the, the porneia, the exception clause that Jesus gave, doesn't seem to relieve the tension in the disciples' minds, and it certainly didn't do so in the Pharisees' minds. The disciples said it would just be better not to get married. And then Jesus says, yeah, not everybody can accept this saying. Not everybody can hear it. And then he starts talking about eunuchs. And the point is, whatever Jesus meant by this exception clause, the disciples arrive at a conclusion that it might just be better not to even get married in the first place. That was their conclusion in what they heard. If what was meant that no divorce except for unfaithfulness of a spouse, well, that sounds reasonable. That sounds more like Shammai. But whatever Jesus meant did not sound reasonable to them. It didn't sound like it was being consistent with even Shammai's view on the exception. Now Mark 10, when the Gospel of Mark was written, that passage leaves out the exception clause altogether. You will not find it there. And the way the disciples heard and understood what Jesus was saying appears to be without that exception clause. Now it's there. But I'm just telling you how the disciples are interpreting this in the context of that, and I think you need to bring that into consideration. Or whatever is meant by the exception clause that Jesus was then teaching doesn't seem to follow the prevailing view of that day. So as a pastor, I find myself between two extremes. The one extreme is the Pharisaic extreme, which puts on the shoulders burdens that people cannot bear. Perhaps I could view that as the most strict position. No divorce ever allowed in any circumstance. And I'm just using the Pharisees as kind of that strictness, not their positions here in Shemai and Hillel. The most strict position. That's one extreme. But the other extreme is taking the exception clause in the most broad way that the Scripture can allow that divorce is permissible for an innocent party if a spouse has been unfaithful. However, on this extreme, of which I tend to lean, I want to warn myself from Matthew 5 when Jesus says, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he who then disobeys and teaches to disobey the least of these laws is called the least in my kingdom. 
And so I want to ask myself, is, Lord, is it possible that we're doing this with too broad of a tolerance in the way that we view divorce and the allowance given? And so I find myself between these two extremes. But going back to an application I made near the beginning, if I have to err, I need to err on the side of mercy rather than on the side of severity. So I come down on that side that we need to allow a truly innocent party to divorce if the spouse has been characteristically immoral in that relationship. That's the side of mercy, which I think allows them to get furthest down the road toward what is right. But when it comes to counsel, I never counsel divorce. But I will say, after the case has been properly judged by an ecclesiastical court, yes, you can do that. It's permissible. But I can say this. If anyone ever contemplates divorce, at best, your consideration is questionable. Even if your spouse has been unfaithful, even that is questionable. Now, the Bible does not counsel you to do that, but rather the Bible's position is the opposite position, like Hosea, who stayed with his unfaithful wife. It's a hard position. It's a difficult position. Now, I want you to take some time from this morning, and you, you need to work through the difficulties of the things that we've covered with this exception clause to show that even on the single exception that the Scripture allows a believer to divorce, it is not simple, it is not straightforward. And that should show us with all the more clarity that all of the other reasons, every other reason you can bring to the table, whatever it is, That is very clear that Christians may not divorce their spouse for any other reason that would be biblical or lawful. And when Christians remarry after they are divorced for any other reason, the scripture deems it adultery. Now let me say this once again. There is forgiveness for this. There is a new start for those who will confess it, what it is, who will repent from it and seek God's forgiveness. There is a forgiveness and there is a new start all over again. If you truly can come to that brokenness and full admission of what you did was wrong and you should not have done it, and you will never counsel anybody to follow what you did. That's true fruit, meat for repentance. But this is what the gospel of Christ is all about. It's about restoring that which is broken and forgiving the penitent sinner and healing the brokenhearted and lifting up those who are bowed down with a contrite heart. Because God is good and he's gracious and he's merciful and he's ready to forgive upon all who call upon him, who all call upon him in truth. 
But the concluding application after these three messages is this. Commit to God and to your spouse to remain faithful to that spouse. Under every circumstance, do not entertain a certain thought or any thought whatsoever that would lead you away or cause your heart to stray from being faithful to that spouse. And there are so many things that the world is trying to bring into your homes through the internet that would cause your eyes to be unfaithful to your spouse. Commit to be faithful, and this issue gets settled clearly. And secondly, commit not to divorce. Commit not to even think about it. I'm about to lose the whole pulpit, and I will not regain you for the rest of the service, I guarantee you. Commit not to divorce. Commit not to entertain thoughts of it. Commit never to even speak the word in your vocabulary and never let your children hear that word out of your mouths. And if you do that, you commit to be faithful to your marriage, commit to be faithful to God in what he has done as he has cemented you together, then there's not going to be the issue of the percentages and the statistics that we have in the church today. May God help us. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this difficult instruction that you've given to us, even through the tediousness of these few messages that we've entertained over this study. And we pray the Spirit of God would use these things to bring forth much fruit in our lives, our marriages, our children, their marriages, our great-great-great-grandchildren whom we do not even know. And we pray that you would reform marriage in the church today and reform divorce so that we can see fidelity, we can see truthfulness, we can see longevity, and we can see your grace abounding over all of our sins. So we commit this to you in the gospel of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.